Well, thank you, Ruth. And please uh, do keep that passage open, Psalm 44 on page 564. We're going to be looking at that together this evening. Uh, Before we look at that, why don't we pray together? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the things that we have heard, what the deeds that you have performed in the past, that you have saved us from our foes. We thank you for your steadfast love. And as we look at this psalm together, please would you remind us again of your love for us, your saving power, and help us understand when things are not as we expect them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If God is powerful, if God is good and all-loving, then why is there evil in the world? It's a question that many people have grappled with over the years. It's a question that leads some people to conclude there can't be a God at all because they can see the evil in the world. And if God is powerful and good, surely he would put an end to it. Maybe uh, it's led some people to conclude maybe God is good but not powerful. Maybe he wants to put an end to evil in the world. Maybe he is trying his best but he is not in charge of everything. It's led some people to conclude that maybe God is powerful and is in charge of everything, but he is not truly good. Otherwise, why would there be evil in the world? Well, it's not a question that is foreign to the writers of the Bible. It's not a question that the writers of the Bible don't grapple with. In our psalm this evening, we hear God's people. Uh, It's a a song for the whole of God's people to sing, asking God why, if he is powerful and sovereign, why, if he is their powerful, saving God, and he is the God of steadfast love, the God who's delighted in his people, then why do his people suffer? Why are they disgraced? Why are they rejected? Why are they a laughingstock? And so as we look at this psalm this evening, we wonder why these things are true. And we've got various things uh, to think about as we go through. I hope you've got a handout with uh, just a bit of an outline of the psalm on it that will help us as we go through. I wonder how you would answer that question I posed at the start. How would you answer that question? If God is powerful, all-powerful, and all-good, a God of love, then why is there evil in the world? I think one of the things I would want to say is that we have rejected God. But the shock of our psalm this evening is to see that God's people haven't left him. They haven't rejected him. So we will be thinking about this. There's a lot to say in the psalm. So let's uh, dive in 
And uh, we're going to start with verses 1 to 8. Now, I've, on the handout, I've split this into two uh, sections, but it's sort of really one section with a slight different flavor. I don't know, Phil, if we've got that on the screen. We have heard that you are a powerful saving God, verses 1 to 3, and you are our powerful saving God. Or put slightly more succinctly, God is powerful. He is the saving God. We know that God is powerful and that he saves his people. Let's follow it through with me in, in the Bible. Verse 1. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. With your own hand, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. We have heard what God has done in the past. We have heard how God has saved his people. We've heard how God chose his people for themselves. Look at the end of verse 3. You delighted in them. If you've been here on our Sunday mornings, uh, we've been thinking the last few months about how God made promises to one man, Abraham, that he would become a nation and that he would be blessed and eventually that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Well, as, as the story of the Old Testament goes on, we see God acting to save his people. We see him blessing the descendants of Abraham. We see um, them becoming a great nation. And it's for that nation, for God's people, that God acts in great acts of saving power. In the Exodus, where God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And in establishing in the land, in Canaan, the land that wasn't theirs. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But then, God's people, you planted in the land. You afflicted the peoples, maybe thinking back to the plagues of Egypt. But them, God's people, you set free. But verse 3 reminds us that this could only come from one place. It could not come from our own power or from the power of their fathers, but from God. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. God is the powerful saving God. He is the only one that can save. And so, as we're thinking this evening tonight about suffering and how there can be evil in the world and pain, if you've come here feeling those things, we have come to the right place. We have come to God to hear from his word, to pray to him, because he is the only one that can save. And not only is that only true in the past, verses 1 to 3, but that is true in the present, verses 4 to 8. That's what God's people sing. That's what the psalmist writes. 
Verse 4, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. You see, that's been in the present day when this psalm is written and when this psalm is sung, that has been the experience of God's people as well. Not only in the past have they heard, uh, not only have they heard that God can save, but this has been their experience. Verse 5, we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. Verse 7, you have saved us from our foes and put to shame those who hate us. And verse 8, it's a great response, isn't it? In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. I wonder if you've noticed in this psalm that most of this psalm uses the language of we and us, the plural. But odd verses use singular language. Some of the commentators I've been reading this week suggest that maybe that's a role particularly for the king to say. If so, it points us forward to the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? Verse 4 is one of those occasions. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. God is the one who has the power to bring salvation. God is the one who can make it happen. So even the king has to look to God for salvation. And verse 6 again is the singular. Not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. Reminds us again, doesn't it, that we have to look to God. We cannot look to ourselves. Uh, The bow and the sword cannot save us. Only God can do that. And so we might get to the end of verse 8, thinking that would be the natural end of the psalm. We have heard what you've done in the past, God. We know that you are a powerful, saving God. We know that you delight in your people. And you are our powerful, saving God. We have experienced that too. God, we pray that you would ordain salvation for Jacob. We trust in you. We do not look to ourselves. We will boast in you, verse 8, continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. But yet, the psalmist goes on. The people go on with their prayer. Verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have taken spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock 
among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Yet you have disgraced us, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. What's going on? God is their sovereign God. He is powerful. He delights in them. They trust in him. Yet, he has rejected his people. Do you see how the images are laid on top of each other? They rejected and disgraced. He makes them turn back from the fall. They're like sheep for the slaughter. They're scattered among the nations. They're sold for a trifle. He doesn't demand a high price for his people, his people he saved. What is going on? The people he delighted him in, yet he doesn't demand a high price for them. They are the taunts of their neighbors. They're byword among the nations. What is going on? Our natural conclusion, I think, would be to think that they have done something wrong. They have abandoned God. They have rejected him, and so he has rejected them. Maybe as they're writing this psalm, as they're singing this psalm, they're thinking back to the covenant and the blessings and the curses promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. When God gave his people his law, he told them that if they obeyed the law, they would be blessed. But if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. And much of the language here is reminiscent of that. In verse 11, he says, you've made us like sleep, sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28 says that if people, God's people don't obey him, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have taken the spoil. They'll be defeated by their enemies. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 28 verse 25 says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Verse 14, you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. Deuteronomy 28 verse 37 says, if that says that if they reject God, you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Surely God's people have rejected him. Surely that's what's going on, we would think, reading this psalm. And so when we get to verse 17, it comes as a shock. All this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. 
if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They say that they haven't rejected God. They have not been false to his covenant. They even point out that their hearts have not turned back. Uh, That's key because, again, that's something that's mentioned in Deuteronomy. Chapter 28 and verse 47. Verse 47 says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. And then verse 48, Therefore you shall serve your enemies. But even their hearts haven't turned back. Not only on the outside are they following God, but in their hearts they're following God. Their steps have not departed from God's way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Now, verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, what does that mean? That means if they'd looked to idols, if they turned away from their God and turned elsewhere, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart again. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, I wonder how you would respond at this point if you were writing the psalm. I wonder if you were in this situation, what would be your instinct? Would it be to turn to God, to pray to him? Would it be to look elsewhere? Would it be to try and trust in yourself? Do the opposite of what they were doing in verse 6. It would have been easy for God's people to look to other gods. Their God wasn't working, therefore they looked to other gods. But that's not what they do. They still come back to God. Why do they come back to him? Because he is the God of steadfast love. And more than that, he is the God who can save them. He is the God who is powerful. And so in the situation they're in, it's actually the only logical thing to do is to go back to God, to pray to him, to call on him. And they do that boldly in our last section, verses 23 to 26. They say to God, why? And they say, come to our help for the sake of your steadfast love. Verse 23, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We feel as we get to the end of the psalm that they don't have all the answers. 
But they know that the only place they can go is to God. The powerful saving God of steadfast love who has made promises to his people. The one who has saved them in the past. They remember what he has done in the past. They remember what he has done in their lives. And so that is the only place they can turn. And they call on him boldly. They're not afraid to question God. They're not afraid to ask him what's going on. They're not afraid on him to ask him to act because he has promised to do so. But they do know that he is the one that they must turn to. He is the one they must call upon. I wonder what you made of that image. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? I think it's only an image. I don't think it's, they mean it literally. They cannot mean literally that God is sleeping because God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And actually, if we look through the psalm, they see God's sovereign hand even in their rejection and their disgrace. Did you see that as we went through verse 9? You, you have rejected and disgraced us. You have made us turn back from the flow. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. So they even see God's sovereign hand in all this. But they pray for God's mercy. They pray that God would act for the sake of his steadfast love. They keep trusting in God. Well, I wonder where else they would have turned after they prayed this prayer, I wonder how God responded. We see through the, the story of the Bible, God coming to his people help. When, he, when they pray to him, he responds. But we also see in the Bible that God has revealed more of his ways to us since this psalm was written. He revealed them when his son Jesus came. And I wonder if you were struck as we went through this psalm how some of these things sound as if they're of Jesus. Not least, verse 11. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. Verse 22. For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Reminds us of those words from Isaiah 53. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter, talking about Jesus being crucified. But if you thought about verse 15, all day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. Also uh, linking to those servant songs in Isaiah. But this is not the worst, last word on this psalm. Because Paul, in his letter to the Romans, quotes it in Romans chapter 8. And so as we come towards the end of our time looking at this psalm, we're going to turn there because I think that gives us a further answer for the times that as God's people, as God's church, especially when corporately we face disgrace, when we're made the taunt, 
when we face derision as scorn. Maybe we know that ourselves, know that as individuals, and know that as a church and God's people. Romans 8 expresses an even greater trust in God's steadfast love. And it reminds us that as we face disgrace and rejection, as we face taunting and derision and scorn, we are only following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just uh, look with me at Romans 8, verse 17, on page 1137. Uh, Do turn there if you haven't already. So, uh, actually, we'll start from verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul tells us that we are going to suffer with Christ so that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, he tells us the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, Paul says, we are going to suffer. This experience of God's people that we've heard in Psalm 44, this is going to happen to us as well because it happened to Jesus. But it's not forever. And please turn with me over the page to verse 35. Because Paul reminds us that though we suffer, we can never be separated from the love of Christ. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let's remind you of a certain psalm. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes Psalm 44. He quotes that verse, being killed all the day long. Even death, Paul is going to say, cannot separate us from the love of Christ. No, verse 37. In all these things, we're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We follow our Savior, Lord Jesus, in suffering. It will mean taunting. It will mean becoming a laughing stock. It will mean being covered with the shadow of death. For some of our brothers and sisters around the world, it will mean being killed for the sake of Jesus. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. Yet nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
And so as we suffer, as we struggle in life, as we grapple with how God can be sovereign and all-powerful and yet be a God of love, a God of steadfast love, we remember the glory that is to come. We remember we cannot be separated from God's love. We cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We look to him. We pray, why are you sleeping? We pray, how long will it be till you put all things right? We pray, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are all-powerful and that you are all-good, that you are all-loving, that you love us. That for the sake of your steadfast love, you will redeem us. You will bring us to your eternal kingdom. Please help us when we struggle. Please help when we face taunting and disgrace for the sake of Jesus. Please help us to keep looking to you. Please help us not to trust in our own strength, but to turn to you. Please help us to cry out to you, like the psalmist does here, like your people did in the past. Please help us as individuals and as your church to trust in your unfailing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.